hamster with a blunt penknife would do it quicker. Hello and welcome back to A Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. Um, today is a special day. Uh, it's a bit self-congratulatory, but today is the one-year anniversary that myself, uh, Simon Hart and Fraser Gregory um, first came together. And... Um, I've met many, many wonderful people through this podcast. It's actually been a fairly life-changing experience overall. Um, I've met my new partner through podcasting. But um, the friendship that endured through this recording, um, which is The Two Doctors, has been truly astonishing. Uh, Some people you connect with and there's no sense of ego and no sense of anyone trying to take control of the friendship. It's just support and love and kindness. And we're all we're three very, very different people. Um, yeah, this is uh, where that friendship um, sprung from. And uh, this was our first recording together. It's the only one that I haven't brought out of what we've recorded. Um, Mostly because we had some terrible technical issues and I knew there would be some editing involved. So if this is a little bit choppier than usual, then I apologise. But also as well, it's the... um, At the period where I really didn't understand about audio quality. So if Cy and Fraser sound a bit tinny, that's because that's that's the old hamster. I record on Zoom now. But this is back in the old day when I recorded on Anchor. But um, this is a massive kiss to my wonderful friends, Simon Hart and Fraser Gregory. Love you very much. And uh, yeah, this is where it all started. Hamster with the blunt pen knife. Rude. Welcome to a hamster with a blunt pen knife. Doctor Who commentary podcast. Oh, it's probably not the voice you're expecting, but let's move on. Today, I'm joined by not one, but two very special guests. We have the wonderful Joe Ford. Say hello, Joe. Hello. It's lovely to be here. And the equally wonderful and magnificent Cy Hart. Say hello, Cy. Hello. <laughs> neither of you. Well, have I can't believe I'm back again. <laughs> I can't believe neither of you have done the joke. <laughs> oh, no, no, I'm saving that for later on. No, you are. <laughs> I've only got one thing to say, and that's darling. Darling. <laughs> darling. Hmm. For the benefit of the people at home, this is 10 o'clock in the morning. We haven't had a drink. We're just acting like we've had one. (laughs) And I'm suffering Um, from the ill effects of a COVID jab, so... (laughs) (laughs) We're just happy to be coming together to talk about um, the wonderful story that we are going to discuss today. So, what are we discussing today, gentlemen? We are discussing, thanks to um, a Twitter poll, which I feel was unfairly... Um, skewed against the Graham Williams years, <laughs> where we could have had two fantastic six-parters to talk about. But no, we're going um, for a deep dive into the Colin Baker era and the two doctors. Excuse me, that is a fantastic story. What are you talking about? Well, we'll find out shortly, won't we? <laughs> 
what were the will. other options, Fraser? What were the other options on the poll? So for the benefit of, of those that didn't see the poll, we decided to record together as a, as a threesome rather than a duet. Um, in order to decide which story we're going to cover, we put three out there to Twitter. We um, asked Twitter to decide between the two doctors, uh, the invasion of time and the Armageddon factor. And the two doctors was the eventual winner. So here we are. Aye. So there's obviously some Colin Baker love out there. And one person commented, I remember, that they wanted to hear like a positive appraisal of this story because they, they wanted to have their mind. So I, I'm, I'm coming at this all positive because I gave this a whopping 10 out of 10 on my blog. Wow. Wow. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, <laughs> we'll see how the rest of us go then, won't we? <laughs> we will. So, Sai, do you think that boat... About was split the Green and Williams board. I think, I think so. I think, yeah, because Invasion of Time was leading for quite some time. So um, maybe if it had just been a, a, a two two horse race, who knows? It was uh, close though, wasn't it? Right. The whole thing it was, was quite close, like all three. Yeah, I was going to say people would just have to wait for my hot takes on the Vardens and Leela and Gallifrey and Barusa and the Brick Tardis. Well, that was our twist at the end. Oh, I don't think I actually told anyone. Sorry. No, <laughs> but, but the twist ending of that poll was we're actually going to do all three. <laughs> but, but we're going to do them in the order that they won, aren't we? So it was like two doctors, invasion of time, Armageddon factor. Yeah, save the best till last, oh, maybe. Yeah. Oh, I love that one. Mm-hmm. Wow. Great. Are we ready to make a start, gentlemen? I certainly am. I am raring to go. All right, so uh, I will count us in then. If you're all ready. Yeah. Five, four, three, two, one, and play. Boom. Wow, we're straight off into a burst of colour here, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, I, I can remember um because I'm a slightly older than both of you, seeing the twin dilemma for the first time and shouting to my mum, who was in the kitchen, to say, Mum, Mum, look, the doctor's smiling in the title sequence <laughs> because there was some kind of animation in the face and it was just, wow! That was really cool. It is full on, this. Like, the music is, is, is it's like faster than the Peter Davidson title sequence, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Oh, we're oh. in black and white. Oh, black guys. Oh. oh, look who it is. Oh. And quite right, opening with the old Doctor, I think. Look at no one wants to see Colin Baker. Do you reckon? No, there was no way they could have kind of continued it in black and white, is there? It almost is a shame that it slips into colour. Yeah, I, I don't think they could have sustained that for very long. Not in 1985. Everyone would have complained. <laughs> is there something wrong with my television set? Well, can, can you imagine the sixth doctor in black and white, though? I, I think that might be for the better, actually. Do you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just going to come straight out and say that his costume is one of my favourites. Who's the, the sixth doctor's costume? Yeah. yeah. If you, I can't think of another doctor. That's more summed up by what he wears in the sixth Doctor. That's very true. I cannot think of a, a man that does these commentaries with more controversial takes. <laughs> <laughs> it's very odd because um, at the time, um, 
So when this went out, I was nine, and so I would have been eight when the Twin Dilemma came on, and he was universally mocked at school for his costume. No one liked it at all. It was very strange. It it seemed to put off lots of the kids that I knew from watching watching the show. Well, and I think that's something that's kind of stuck, hasn't it? I, I, between how he was portrayed in the Twin Dilemma, i.e trying to murder Perry and how he was dressed at the end of it. Like I've heard a lot of people say that he didn't really get much of a chance like to make his mark because there was just like such a bold statement. Imagine, imagine a, a regular person sticking on the TV and going, you know, what? I haven't watched Doctor Who for a while. I'm going to stick that on and have a look. And then you see the doctor dressed up like Ronald McDonald. Like, it's a bit of a it's it is like a bit of a put off, I think. Yeah, I can see that point of view, but like I say, for me, it's it's very much you know that is Colin's portrayal of the Doctor is loud, it is bold, it is in your face, it is you know it's 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 there in that jacket essentially. What's, you put that jacket on, you know what's coming at you, and it's Colin. What's frightening about that costume is you adjust to it over time and then you don't really notice how garish it is because you're so used to seeing it. Oh. Yeah, the only, the only issue with... I was going to say, and you contrast it here with Patrick Troughton yeah. doing the dot things in his costume and it... The screen seems quite black and white, bizarrely. It's... Well, yeah. well, well, this is the thing because... Because Colin's costume was so bright, everyone else's costumes had to match. Because you couldn't through. Um, I read this in, in one of the handbooks, and it's the the, the color range of the screen um, was you know it's not infinite. You couldn't have, for example, everyone dressed in black velvet and Colin coming in wearing these. The contrast would be too much for the telly. So everyone else's costumes in his stories need to quite be quite colourful quite bright as well is that why everyone's dressed so garishy is that why perry's yeah. in that like bright leotard yeah. And... yeah so if you sort of look at perry's um outfit in the mark of the rani which we don't talk about then that's oh. you know, the typical one of it's it's supposed to be blending in but it's not it's quite bright you know it's bright yellows it's bright pinks and it's because of the range of, of color that the camera could accommodate needed to to be at a certain level um otherwise they would just clash Okay, well, we've just seen Shock Eye for the first time. Surely, surely both of you love Shock Eye. Yeah, it's a really broad performance, isn't it? But he's great fun. But with that scene that we've just missed talking over, the, the direction really lets it down. There's a great joke with the Doctor presenting the cucumber. Yeah. But it's all ruined because you see it all before it happens. Yeah. So the punchline is actually like you, you can see the punchline coming rather than the flourish. Yeah. 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 Make any difference? I do. Do you know what I like these sets though? I do like the space station sets. I've heard a lot of people say they're a bit bland. Oh, look who's here, darling! Oh, darling! Darling! <laughs> oh, I love her to bits. She's so good, and I. For, for quite a long time, I've been, been sort of worried and that actually she's just playing Serverland in this, but actually she's not. She's 
a bit more subtle than than she was in Blake Seven, and she is sort of looking after the the um. What am I thinking of? I don't know. <laughs> she's looking after her. She's looking at the character, and she's not just doing the Serbland flourishes and the sort of banal evil. She there's quite a thoughtful performance, I think, in it. Sai, what's not subtle about maximum power? I don't know what you mean. That's a very <laughs> subtle and perfect performance. <laughs> but she says in the commentary that she thinks she's basically just giving the same performance and colin baker interrupts her and says it's not the same performance at all you know you're you're uh, like you said a lot more subtle um a bit more icy yeah definitely and um, i think she's quite hampered by the awful costume that she's saddled with which wasn't designed for her because i don't know whether you know she wasn't the first choice for Cassini. There were two other choices. Yeah. One was Jean Marsh. Can you imagine Jean Marsh? Yes. But Jean, he turned it down because she'd just done Return to Oz and she just said, this is basically the same as I've just done. I'm not coming to do this. And the second was Elizabeth Spriggs, who turns up in Paradise Towers. She was fired, wasn't she? She got the part, I think. Yeah, she couldn't That's make it. Yeah, she couldn't make the rehearsals for the filming or something, so they fired her. But they'd already designed the costume, and because she was an older lady, the costume is is designed for her rather than Jacqueline Pierce, unfortunately. So, uh, yeah. speaking of costumes, though, go on. We need to mention your man, the story. <laughs> I mean that that is that's a work of something that is. What, what he's what he's wearing there that. Well, you've got like okay, you've got Dastar. I mean, what is Dastari wearing as well? Is it, is it a tracksuit? Is it a jumpsuit? Who knows? What's weird though is they put them all in clothes, which would be extremely uncomfortable to wear in the heat of Seville. Well, exactly. Why, why are they not in short sleeves and <laughs> light cotton costumes? Well, at least Perry gets a bikini, but we'll, we'll talk about that. If you... Okay, there's one thing that's quite unusual about this story is it has really long extended dialogue scenes. And a lot of the stuff in the 80s is like quick scene after quick scene. It's kind of the Earthshock, the Warriors of the Deep, the Caves of Androzani. There's something very theatrical about this story, isn't there? That the, they are... I think there's a scene between the Doctor and Perry later in this episode, which is uh, 11 minutes long. And that's kind of unheard of at the time. Yeah, it is. Season 22 is an odd one because a lot of the time it feels like it's a throwback because I think of the 45-minute episodes, Eric Sayward hasn't quite worked out how these episodes will work. So what he does is give us an extended episode one and then episodes two, three, and four in the final part. With this one, it's slightly better paced Oh god, isn't this music great? Oh, I love oh. this bit of music. Oh, oh. Oh, yeah. Um, so I think all the stories this year have really huge pacing problems. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of talking scenes and not a lot of action. Whereas when they 
so, so the year before when they did um the original broadcast of resurrection of the daleks where they edited the two episodes together the pacing works much better because it's not designed as two as a two-part 50-minute episodes mm -hmm. it's it's a four-part story edited together so you get all those natural wow the pace is is much faster i mean the weird thing about this story is come episode three I think I feel like you have two fairly languid episodes, and then come episode three, it just really accelerates in the last half an hour. There's lots of action, and it, it yeah. kind of powers yeah, towards the climax. The the first episode has got a lot of padding in it. Um, second one, things start happen a bit more, but really, the, come the third, it really just gallops towards. You know, there's still padding in the third, but then it just really gallops towards its, its end, and it's wrapped up in you know, in, in the space of a few minutes. Really. But it's worth saying, it is padded, but it's Robert Holmes padding. And this dialogue is gorgeous. I mean, I think the dialogue throughout this story is top-notch. What do you think about this? Um, is this supposed, where is this supposed to be? Where are they supposed to be fishing right now? I think they're just on some kind of alien planet somewhere. That just so happens to look like Seville. It looks very like Seville, doesn't it? <laughs> It's uncanny, but I don't know how they managed to go all the way to Spain and make it look like the sun's not out. I know. <laughs> it's really bizarre. And the weird thing is, like, even later on when they're in like the Spanish streets and the hills and all that, I feel like they've taken like the grading, the light grading down because it's it, mm -hmm. the sun looks a bit dull and it's very yeah. odd. If you watch it with the commentary on, they mention that, um, you know, they sit and say, look, I can't believe how dull this looks when really it was absolutely roasting hot. It's, uh, it's, you remember, do you remember that complaint about, um, oh no, what's the other way? Remember Peter Dawson used to complain about how brightly lit the sets were and they used to say, yeah. well, the old women at home, you know, they would adjust their, their uh, tr uh, lighting if they, uh, if it was too dark. But that doesn't work in this argument because they've actually taken the, the, the light down, haven't they? So. Miss Colin juggling his fish there. He did very well with that. He I did. was convinced as a kid. With that. Convinced. that pool that they're at it was supposed to be completely full. And Gary Downey says in the special features that it had basically that it was a puddle that was left. And so they had to shoot it in a particular way to make it look as if he was fishing like in a great river. Well, thank goodness they had a great director to, to make sure those scenes really worked. Okay, I'm right. Uh, we're gonna have, have it out now because I think. Okay, I don't think this is amazingly, like, dynamically directed. But I do think Peter Moffat is a better director than people give him credit for. I think he casts really well. I think um, he can choreograph a scene really well, and I think he's a lot better when he's on location than like most directors are. Come on, come at me. Okay. Um... <laughs> I agree. He definitely gets a really great cast, and I think he lets them do their work. And you can see that that they they know what they're doing. He casts people that he knows will, he will get something really brilliant out of, and he can he knows that he, then he can just concentrate on getting it in the can. And I think he he started off really well. I think with. Who, uh, the State of Decay and The Visitation are both really good, as is Mordred Undead. The Five Doctors, I think, it's just such a shepherding all these actors and keeping them in line job that yeah. 
after that, I think it's just, uh, okay, well, I'll just do what I can and get this done. There's so much joy in the Fire Doctors. I don't. I think you could just point at the camera I, and had all those actors I, come in and you'd still love it, you know? I, it's one of my favourite, favourite stories in the whole world. I have a feeling then you're going to say, come the twin dilemma. Yeah, I think there's no money. It's the end of the season. You're introducing a new doctor. There's so much going on that he's not quite on top of it all. So I think I think it was a bad idea introducing the doctor at the end of the season anyway. Oh, I think they should have waited till the next year, really, and given Peter Davison another story. That would have been good. It's not even that, though, as well. It's like introducing him at the end of the season with that story in that way and leaving people going, do I like this guy? Yeah. That's a bad choice, isn't it? That music again. Boom. I love it. Wowzers. Okay. So, what about this console room? It's my favourite. Oh, God, it's so gorgeous. I love that console with all those buttons. And, yeah, it's beautiful. What? Including the new series? That's like your favourite across the board? Yeah, my favourite of them all. That's the one, if I was travelling, I'd want to be in there. See what those buttons do. Fraser? Oh, it's, it's, it's a good one. Yeah. Um, is it my favourite one? <clears throat> oh, no, that's a question. Oh. What? So, Fraser, what is your favourite console, like, of all time? Ooh, um, I mean, I do like this one. I do like the one, um, you know, that went from Colin to Sylvester. Um, I think my favourite new one would probably be Capaldi's. Uh, yeah, I think I'd agree with you. Actually. I think that is just, um, you know, I think, obviously, you have the coal for, for, for Chris and, and David Tennant, and then Matt Smith's first one was just a bit too grassy. Um, but I think um, the Capaldi was sleek. It was, and it was just like atmospherically lit, wasn't it? Uh, like every yeah, yeah. every scene just had instant atmosphere. So, like, what did you think of the Matt Smith one? Well, what I really disliked about the new series ones is they're quirky. Okay. Oh, it's made of all these bits that the Doctor's got round the TARDIS, and oh, doesn't it doesn't it look zany and awful? Absolutely awful. I really, I like a nice clean console with buttons. It's a spaceship. It has complicated things. It should have proper press buttons and levers and things. And that's why I like the Capaldi console more than anyone else because you can see how it works. Right. I know you're saying like, well, like well, with um, Jodie Whittaker's one, you've got a, like a biscuit dispenser with, uh, I think with Matt Smith's one, there was like, like sauce and mustard or something, dispensers or something. Yeah. It was very odd. Yeah. Had a typewriter on his. It's like you're flying a TARDIS with a typewriter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, what I forgot to mention at the start is that we really should be playing the Shock Eye drinking game. Okay. Well, I've got a drink here. It's only water, but I'm willing to play. I've got, I've got some Vimito. Essentially, the Shock Eye drinking game is every time Shock Eye says the word meat, okay. bone, or flesh, you take a drink. <laughs> you would get and more you, drunk if it, you dr drunk every time he went. <laughs> you because you'll be on the floor paralytic by the end of episode one. <laughs> so I was having a conversation with someone yesterday, right? And
and they were saying like the ultimate Doctor Who drinking game was um, drink every time there's a double entendre, i.e. a bit of dialogue that you could take in a rude way. And with this story, you'd be paralytic by the end of episode one. You'd be paralytic after five minutes. The way it started was completely talked over that. Look but at the then... size of that one. <laughs> Look at the size of that doctor. Oh, that's a big one, Jimmy. <laughs> yeah, there's, um, there's a story about um, Robert Holmes came to the rehearsals for the story. And um, he was just incredibly amused at how Patrick Troughton and Fraser Hines and Colin Baker managed to wring every single, <laughs> single entendre out of his script. That he didn't expect. <laughs> I mean, there's and a line in there about a hairy legged Highlander, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Oh, come on. So, okay, one of the criticisms of this era as well is prolonged TARDIS console scenes, and there are a lot in this story. But I will say again, it's all Robert Holmes dialogue. Like, there's a bit in a minute where he pulls out this um, this massive um, like cards holder. Yeah. And it's got, what is it? Who is in it? Joinston, Dastari, uh, Christopher Columbus. Columbus. He's got a lot to answer for. Oh, that's a yes. good, that is a great line. But again, Baker wrote that line. He ad lived that. <laughs> and looks at Perry. He looks at Perry. Yeah. And says... <laughs> but of course, the story was originally supposed to be set in New Orleans, and so Robert Holmes had written a lot of. Um, a lot of dialogue like that, so a lot of stuff about, you know, the, the, the differences between, you know, UK and America and, and having a bit of sort of a, a banter and a bit of joke about that. And obviously it all went in the way by the wayside when they couldn't afford to go to New Orleans and had to reschedule to go to Seville. I mean, and he'd written that script, hadn't he? That must have been bloody annoying to have to, like, rewrite the whole thing for Seville. Yes. Yeah, well, he, he said the, the Andragons... Um, he created the Andergums because he knew it was going to be set in New Orleans. And he said, well, what's New Orleans famous for? Well, jazz. Okay. Oh, Aliens that like jazz. I can't get my head around that. <laughs> I can't make it up. And then the other thing was the food. He thought, oh, well, it's, it's a, like the culinary centre of America with, you know, soul food and whatnot. So that's where the Andergums came from. And this race that are devoted to pleasure and eating and all the rest of it. And then, obviously, it changed to Seville and he was kind of like... Yeah, mate, I can't be bothered anymore. Just have the androids. I can't think of anything Spanish. It, it'll do. It'll do. We'll just write a scene where they go to the go and have some food. And I, I think it does work. I think I think yeah. um, transferring the androids from New Orleans to Seville, like it does well, work. I think the thing I like about the androids in this story is that we don't get any explanation for them. Really, we are tre- very grown up in this story. We don't get any real exposition about who the Androgums are or anything. We just sort of, you know, you have your initial scene where the second Doctor comes in and he deals immediately with Shocker. He knows what Shocker is. He's an Androgum, so he knows how to people them. He knows, you know, put them in his place, threaten them with a cucumber, that sort of thing. We don't, you know, get any sort of exposition about, you know, um, oh, he's an Androgum from this planet and blah, 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 blah. You just get it introduced. You have that wonderful scene um, that will we've had already where um Chisini and Shokai are you know trading the the clans essentially are you um Shokai of the Quantum Greek you've forgotten your Andrecum inheritances I know I'm Chisini of the Francine Greek and that that's how it's done that's how your exposition is done yeah yeah, um, yeah. but when you go you skip back to the previous story oh, the, no the next story sorry time lash and it's so awkwardly done 
like yeah. the exposition is dropped in you know like oh my god the city is threatened what all yeah. 500 of us you know it's just so <laughs> whereas yeah it's exactly so when i watched this on vhs in the 90s as a teenager you know i just thought well there must be more stories with undergrounds yeah. because it's not explained you know it's not it's not set up you don't say like genesis of the undergrounds anything up it's just so you, you're kind of left thinking there must be more stories where you get more background about them but then obviously there's not and i think that is that's the beauty of the writing here is that we are trekked so so adult and um you know not 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 babied in as much as already you need to know where these these aliens come from i um the idea of i think this is a brilliant like money-saving idea of having the story set in this location before and after an invasion because i think it feels very different doesn't it to earlier now they've, they've oh, brought yeah. the lights right yeah. down they filled I it full of corpses it. look it's 80s doctor who and there's dark corridors doesn't happen very often and i quite like the purple that they've got in there that looks really it's really quite stylishly done i mean look at that he's just stepped into that purple like that's really quite atmospheric and i really like the idea of the computer trying to kill them in various ways as well yeah. it gives colin baker a chance to do something a bit doctorish which is like trying to outfox it you know yeah and he rises to the occasion really well doesn't he, yeah. I, he when, does I, when i was watching this last weekend i was was thinking what if they'd swap the doctors go on and it was colin who had had the early scenes where he'd been sent by the time lords because there's a bit of a thread through season 22 of the doctor being maneuvered into situations by the time lord so you get it in attack yeah, of the side yeah, yeah. don't you and so there's obviously and that, that could have built up to his trial and then him and perry go off to to the space station do those first scenes and then patrick trouton turns up and has to investigate the death of his future self. That would be great. That would be really and then you get lots of lovely scenes with Perry with a nice doctor who really liked her. I love and... I love the idea that you said there of like these stories featuring the Time Lords behaving in in bad ways. Like yeah, that being an arc, but that just wasn't like the nature of TV at the time, was it? <clears throat> no, but they yeah, but it could have all then tied up with the trial when they do that and it, it could have worked yeah but no they do it the other way around and then colin could have had the pleasure of having getting his remote control that he's wanted in mark of the rani as well and yeah i just think maybe maybe this it could this could have worked so you're basically rewriting doctor who my god the hubris of you man <laughs> honestly <laughs> what do you think about um the sixth doctor and perry then like that's that's a contentious pairing yeah it i you can tell that there's there's really good chemistry i think between colin baker and nicola bryant and they really enjoy working with each other but i'm not sure they get the best material to work with i'm not sure it's a it's the greatest doctor companion relationship half the time i'm just there thinking well why would you keep traveling with this man <laughs> wouldn't you just want to go home what's what are you actually getting out of this you're just having a miserable time the whole time i mean i feel i felt that way with tegan as well i was like 
you know like you're so miserable you're so unengaged with these adventures like why do you keep getting into the TARDIS well I think the difference for Tegan is is obviously Tegan was kept especially in um, season 19 was like no I don't want to be part of these adventures get us home and you know bless him he tries but it takes some of the full series to get there um I think when I watched this story I thought this was a much better story for Perry and the Doctor's relationship um, there's a lot more scenes of and we've, we've just had one there where you know Perry's you know passed out through a lot of oxygen and the doctor's you know caressing her head and he's oh you yeah, feeling better yeah, yeah. you know it's a lot um it's a lot nicer scene between them and um, when we come to the end the end scene between the two of them is very um caring the doctor is very caring towards Perry so I think we are seeing you know starting to see the softening of the relationship um between the softening of, of the six doctor's character um, but there is certainly points, and there will be points in this story as well, um, especially when we start the second episode, where he is very um, antagonistic towards her. But also, I think in this episode, she does start to get back a little bit as well. Yeah. You know, um, is, is there not a scene where the sort of like mouth arsehole behind his back at one point? <laughs> you know, She's so, giving him two fingers, like. <laughs> Um, no, there so is definitely there is definitely a moment where he's really rude to her. And she just sort of bites at him in the background, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Well, and I think as well with with Colin Baker and Nicola Bryan, they do have terrific chemistry. Yeah. But they're not allowed to kind of show it half the time. It's really frustrating. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't know if either of you have listened to their Big Finish stories, but obviously over like three decades, they've cultivated a beautiful friendship. And in their Big Finish stories, the writing reflects that. And they're allowed to be like this this real like uh, workable pairing. It's, it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? So I think their first story, Whispers of Terror, was written very much in the season 22. Yeah. Lots of lots of banter but in not a particularly pleasant relationship and they both said no we're not if you're going to write like this we're not going to do this we need something better than this and then uh well, i think i can't remember what came next i think it was ish ish uh dot 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 ish um yeah phil pasco's story and then just immediately there's just like a softening up of their relationship and they're having fun that's i think that's the big key in every story this season, I swear she walks out of the TARDIS, like in Mark of the Rani, she's like, oh, some substitute for Kew Gardens in um, Revelation of the Daleks. She's like, oh my God, nut roast rolls. Woo! You know, like, cheer up, cheer the fuck up, mm-hmm. woman. You know, like. <laughs> I've always wanted to see London, but the sewers. Yeah. <laughs> but I honestly, if you were given the opportunity to travel through time and space, man, I'd be there for that, you know, regardless of what's happening. Well, it's 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 kind of that dynamic though isn't it he's, he's he's very alpha male is the sixth doctor he's very you know um you can imagine you know she can see in the tardis as it were that they are going the wrong way and she's pointing it out it's like you know when you're driving somewhere it's like you know i've got the map i know you're going the wrong driving the wrong route and the man doesn't listen it's like no 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 man's to your car i know which way are going sort of thing and that's that sort of dynamic as well it's like the doctor keeps saying well i will take you to kew gardens i'll take you nice places and it never happens so of course she's going to get like just listen to us i told you i told you the thermic regulator wasn't twisted enough (laughs) 
Is that, is that a double entendre again? <laughs> Frank, what they, yeah, I think what they needed was a relationship like the later relationship between John Pertwee and Joe, where the Doctor is really pompous, but Joe's worked out that the best way to deal with this is just to take the piss out of him and say, and get the better of him. And I think there could have been something very easily built up between the Doctor and Perry like that, but that would have been warmer and more fun to watch. Yeah. I always figured it was supposed to be like those like 1940s comedies with the, the, the man and the woman always biting at each other, but like really witty, really funny. A bit like how they played it in The Runaway Bride with the 10th Doctor and yes. Donna. That sort of sparky... Yeah funny but unfortunately you've got eric's award script editing and so yeah, he doesn't um, have a sense of humor well there's, oh. a, there's a level of of horrendous sexism i think when where perry's concerned yes. um and he doesn't yeah. like colin baker so he's not basically he's not giving him the best material because he doesn't like him playing the doctor i think i think the level of sexism at <laughs> perry though is is not just through eric's award um, you know, GNT's got a bit of answer oh, for for this sure, because yeah. he, he knew exactly what he was doing. I mean, he's he's dressed her there in a bikini and she stays in this bikini for the whole um, way through. And you know, as a, as a teenage boy, I loved that. That was brilliant. But <laughs> as a, you, know, you know, as an adult now, you know, you kind of think what she's lusted after by. Because I think there's. The case of Androzanish casts such a huge shadow over this era because it, it had been such a remarkable story. And I think the whole time they're just trying to emulate what they did yeah. in that. But the writers aren't necessarily up to it. So you get Perry being lusted after by the villains, story after story after story. Do you remember yeah. in um, The Twin Dilemma, even Mestor's like, I find yeah. her pleasing. And I'm mm -hmm. like, really? We've gone to a point where a, a, a massive pantomime slug is lusting after Perry. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's just so reductive. It's so, it really denigrates her role to the woman in this story. Absolutely. And I think the worst of it is, is time lash where she's just tied up and screaming oh, at a long God. wobbly yeah. snake like thing that's just coming towards her and there's so many levels of symbolism in that yeah, it's sure just is. i think and, and, and it's it's a poor reflection on nicola bryant as well um you know i've, I've met nicola bryant at the convention before and she's such a lovely person um you know and just to have her performance her role in doctor who reduced to basically um you know, eye candy is is really, um, again, uh, yeah, it's really dismissive of her as a as a performer because she is. You know, I hold my hands up I, until I met. Her, I didn't realize she wasn't American. Really? Oh, okay. So I, I mean, I can hear some accent slips sometimes. There's a couple of whoppers. Yeah, in case of Androsani, she says like, "What is it? Maybe we could have some glass." And it's just really <laughs> obvious. There, but I was genuinely convinced for quite a long time that she was American. As, as a yeah, as a kid watching this at the time, I fell for all JNT's publicity. Yeah, she's American. <laughs> she's yeah, she's all of this. I just think. Okay, well, how? How did I fall for that? But I was eight or nine, so you do. Yeah. And it took a long time. When I remember hearing her talking with an English accent for the first time, just going, oh my God, <laughs> where did this come from? Why is Nicola Bryan putting on an English accent? Yeah. Yeah. That, I remember I saw her in something else. I was like, she's good at an English accent. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I thought. I was like, you can do a good English accent. Mm -hmm. 
skipping back to like the whole sexism angle for a second, I've got a big question for both of you because uh, I would really love to know your answers to this. What do you think is the most sexist decade of classic who? 60s, 70s, or 80s? Because I think Ooh. it's the 80s. I think the 80s is where the most overt sexism takes place. That's a tricky one because, you know, yes, in the 80s, it's it's quite clear, you know, again, we're, you know, we're dressing Perry in a very get the dads to watch Doctor Who sort of way. Um, I think the 70s was very... Um, Overt. It was more, you know, you watch those stories and you've only got the one female character. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're watching through the likes of um, season 14. You know, it's noticeable that you take Sarah out. Your next story has no female characters. The next one is Leela, who was again dressed to get the dads watching. You know, so. Although, interestingly, in the late 70s, when Williams came in, suddenly he started populating character uh, stories with loads of women yeah like absolutely season, uh, 16 yeah, and 17. It, yeah I, you look at stones of blood that's all all women really yeah. creature from the pit uh, fraser that you watched the other day that's got several female characters in that hasn't it yeah 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 and you, you look at the 60s the 60s has got more more female characters but they just don't get a great deal to do it's it's sort of like you know the, the background characters the men do all the the saving of the day and um, with a few notes of exceptions space museum that's sort of thing. <laughs> um, you know it's, it's the male characters that that do everything so it's you know there's 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 ups and downs for each each decade i would say um what i will say though is that doctor who has not given us a, a weak female companion at any point what you think never 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 Never, never given oh, it. Not even Dodo. Yeah. Dodo had a Dodo. lot of spunk. I think Dodo had a lot of spunk about her. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. That sounds disgusting. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean. Yeah, if, if you think about Dodo, I mean, one of the one of the things that kind of I don't think gels well with Dodo is she never got a proper introduction. She just walks into the TARDIS. Yeah. Walks into the TARDIS at the end of that story and she walks out of it in the arc full of... Um, you know, full of herself essentially and i think that that jaws and i think that's possibly one of the reasons why that character didn't sit well it's the same with mel mel never gets an introduction yeah mel just gets given to us at the end of trial of the time lord we don't know she never earns our spurs as it were mm -hmm. um, but every other you know companion has, has got something about them they're either really clever or really strong characters um without exception i would say I always think with Mel, um, after Perry, Mel comes to, like, people just go on about the screaming, and she does scream a lot. <clears throat> I don't think a lot of those screams were scripted. I think that's JNT saying, get her to scream. She's got a hell of a scream. But I think she's way more proactive than Perry, Mel. Like, she's driving stories in Terror of the Vervoids, um, less, less so in Ultimate Fight, in Time of the Rani, in yeah. Paradise Towers. Uh, and in Dragonfire as well. I, th I, th oh, I think I, there, there was an attempt to kind of there, dial, dial uh, back a bit. There are, yeah, there are some things that, that really irritate me about the writing of Mel. I always remember there's um, there was an interview somewhere or Andrew Cartmel said, oh, I said, well, the problem with Mel was she had no character. And I said, and I was also thinking, well, you're the script editor. Give her a character. Yeah. She's really good. And Bonnie Langford is up for anything. You could give her anything and she will will take it and go for it with 
full gusto. But as a sort of as a child in the eighties, I I wasn't a huge fan of Mel, but I, I've sort of subsequently come to to enjoy her because she just wants to travel with the Doctor and she's throwing herself into the adventures in the way that most of the other JNT era characters haven't done. She Although, wants to don't be you feel that. like sometimes they overcompensated a bit? You had like Tegan and Perry for years and years going, oh God, let's go back to the TARDIS. And then Mel's in Paradise Towers going, oh, we're going to go to the pool. You know, like it's, it's like completely the other direction. <laughs> That's taking it to the other extreme, isn't it? Because that irritated me about Paradise Towers. It's like, oh, there's stuff going on and you just want to go swimming. <laughs> you don't want to go and you're just yeah. obsessed with getting to the pool. It's like, oh, read the room. <laughs> Look at the bigger picture. Stop. But interestingly, <laughs> again, you skip forward to Big Finish, and they actually write her in as a computer programmer with skills, and yeah. she's just a really effective character. Yeah. So the potential is there with Perry, with Mel. The potential is definitely there. Yeah, but I think you've got a very disinterested production team at this point. I think. I. I, I I've said this many times before. I think Eric Saywood maybe should have left either at the end of this year or the previous year, yeah. and maybe JNT as well, and give Colin a new production team who are coming in with new ideas, and bang, off we go. We're going to do something really different here. It's a tricky I think one. By this point, they've been doing this a long time, and there's a real feeling of jadedness with it all. It's a well oiled machine, they know what they're doing everything's fine but nothing is being pushed yeah and i don't think you get that push again until andrew cartmel arrives yeah and uh, judges up the storytelling behind the scenes and comes in and does just reinvigorates it all yeah with with, uh with jnt like a lot of people say that he should have gone uh around the time of the five doctors like that would have been a good out for him and that a good celebration for him to see out and then bring someone in with fresh blood we wouldn't have got Colin Baker. We wouldn't have got Sylvester McCoy. No, like, I wouldn't no. lose those doctors. So it's a it's a difficult one, you know. Yeah, it's yeah, it's hard because there's so many great decisions that he does make. But I think maybe he needed someone other than Eric Saywood behind him as his script editor to reinvigorate oh, yeah. the show. I think, I think that's the conclusion I've come to um, when rewatching this particular story as well. Is I don't have so much of an issue with the GNT era as I do with the Eric Seward right. era. Yeah, so you quite like the Christopher H. Bidmead stuff and the Andrew Cartmel stuff. I think, you know, initial Seward thing, but he stays, he does stay too long. And I think um, we're going to see in this story as well, bits that of Eric Seward and not Robert Holmes, which I'm not a fan of. But that's, that's going to be episode three. Um, <laughs> I, I always feel like, like in season 19, He's kind of new to it, isn't he? So he's doing a shock and things like that. And he's kind of having some fun with the show. Season 20, something just goes wrong straight away. I think they're all big concept stories, all really interesting ideas. And they're kind of not told in a very engaging way. It's really frustrating. No, I think Eric Saywood just ha- doesn't like the Doctor very much. I think this I is the problem. Yeah. He doesn't believe in Peter Davison's Doctor being a nice guy in a bad universe and he doesn't believe in this doctor that he's helped create in any way whatsoever and so he does everything he can to take their agency away through the stories do you think that extends uh, to davison and colin baker yeah i think i think it starts with peter davison and i think you see through season 20 that 
the doctor is very much an exposition machine who is just there to tell you what's happening and this is this and we're at the center of the universe and this will be the end of me as a time lord and this will be this and this will be this and you compare that to when Christopher H. Bidby comes back in front of us and suddenly the doctor's got a personality and a character and he's got and you to see Peter Davison seizing it because it's the first time in ages he's not written as a generic yeah. hero he's got his character is back doesn't even think, say himself if, if sorry Fraser that if if he'd had more stories like Androzani he would have stayed another year yeah You're, someone is pretty much ahead of me. Yeah, it's it's me. Mine mine paused completely. So let's just keep oh, talking okay. until yours run out because I was just guessing where it was because mine literally froze completely. Well, this is still going out, guys. So keep talking. So anyway, Doctor Who and Perry are on their climbing frame, having adventures at the moment. <laughs> Nick O'Brien claims this is the set from Top of the Pops, you know. I, I can well believe it. I can well believe it as well. But coming back, and he has a cliffhanger, um, we've got the Doctor doing very doctory things, um, rewiring mm -hmm. things. And it's and this is a really good cliffhanger, in my opinion. You've got the Doctor, and it's a, it's a classic Sixth Doctor zooming on his face. You know, knocked unconscious, fallen mm -hmm. down off top of the pop set, hanging by the wires. You've got Perry being assaulted by who knows what, whoever, what, anyone that because it's Perry and Charles gets assaulted. Well, I'll tell you what, troublingly, he's getting his leg over in a very dramatic way, isn't it? <laughs> very much so. Fraser, honestly. So, I mean, I, I, I always disagree with people on cliffhangers for some reason. Or, you know, all the ones I think are good cliffhangers, people think are rubbish, and all the ones that I think aren't as good, well, people rave about. But for me, a cliffhanger is, um, it's what gets you watching next week. Yeah, for sure. You know? I, yeah. Love, I love the cliffhangers. Like, I, I think they are, like, one of the things that makes Doctor Who. I think the the prime example is the horror fan rock. People always, always rave about, I think it's the episode three cliffhanger, where it's like Tom Baker going, I've locked the enemy inside with us. And it's, it's like, I don't get that because I know that already. I know you've done that. 